Hi, I'm Matt Richter, and welcome to the second episode of the Tiagi Group Business Intelligence Podcast. Today, our guest is Guy Wallace. Guy has been in the performance improvement field since 1979, working as both an external consultant and inside guy. Actually, no pun intended there. Recently, he joined Wachovia's General Bank Group's Learning and Development Organization. His clients have included many Fortune 500 organizations, and he's traveled the world working with BP, Opal, Siemens, and more. He's enjoyed his time working with NASA as well. Guy specializes in designing performance-based recruiting and selection systems, processes and tools, training and development systems and products, and other improvement interventions for almost every type of business function and process. He and his clients have won numerous awards and recognition for their efforts. He's a guru in both the analysis and design of large-scale curriculum architecture designs, what he calls CADs, for mission-critical enterprise processes. Guy's published five books and more than 90 articles. He's presented more than 70 times at international conferences and chapters of the International Society for Performance Improvement, ISPI, and the American Society for Training and Development, ASTD, and others. So, on to the interview. So, Guy, welcome to the uh, Tiagi Group uh, podcast, Business Intelligence. We're, we're thrilled to have you. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. So, uh, we are going to spend some time today talking about performance modeling and deriving the enablers that you use to facilitate a group process. But before we get into that, it was uh, just uh, New Year's and Christmas and Hanukkah. And How are your holidays? Oh, I had a great holiday. Spent them with the family and my four grandchildren, which is always a treat. And then I got away for a little break down to uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, for a little golf and then a co- very cold, cold, cold New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. How now, about you? I was down in Florida enjoying uh, some warm weather with Tiagi, actually. Ah, very and, nice. Uh, in fact, you can catch us on YouTube uh, uh, playing outside. Oh, I'll have to go look for that. Yeah. So I didn't know you were a golfer. Well, I'm more of a flogger, which is the backwards <laughs> approach to golf. But uh, So I've been playing for about 20-some years here out of my 57, and uh, I've not made much improvement since year two. Have you but it's fun. Have you applied uh, performance improvement techniques to your golfing? Probably not consistently. I think we need to do an intervention. <laughs> That's what my golfing buddies would say, for sure. <laughs> So give me an overview of what we're going to talk about today. What, what is performance modeling? Um, performance modeling is a methodology that I was taught. It was a derivative of a derivative of the analysis methodologies of Gary Rumler back in the very late 1970s. Um, and performance modeling captures the way, the way I do it now. It's evolved over over. Uh, time since those early days, but uh, it captures ideal performance, and it also captures side-by-side a gap analysis of what's really going on in the current state versus this ideal state. So um, so the idea is that I'm, I'm trying to look at what's actually happening in the work environment rather right, than you, making assumptions. And you want to compare that against an ideal of performance that's actually been performed by the folks that I call master performers, others might call them subject matter experts, but I got burned by subject matter experts in the early 80s, and uh, 
So I always prefer to have people who were performing at a level of mastery the day before they met with me so that I would know I was getting the, the, the current state best practices. Uh, and so that's, that's really what the performance modeling is trying to capture. So it's all about how you go about gathering the data for that. So I really want to hear this story about uh, the subject matter expert that burned you. But let's hold that for, for a few minutes. There, there are three components to performance modeling. What are they? Well, there's the, uh, what I'll talk about is that there's the outputs here that you produce. There's four different data sets. And then we'll talk a little bit about the group that you might want to assemble to do this. And, of course, you can do this through individual uh, observations and interviews, but I found that it's much quicker and I get a higher quality result when I when uh, facilitate a group of master performers into generating all of this data. And so, capture right from their very mouth. As a performance consultant or as a human performance technologist, if you're an ISPIer, which I know you are, mm-hmm. uh, who would you target to work with in an organization? So you're you're a consultant. Who who do you want to work with when you're going through this entire process? Well, I would work with uh, my clients. I collaborate with them. I work with a project steering team or whatever it might be called. It's the client and usually key stakeholders who have some vested interest in what we're addressing, et cetera. Well, who, who would the client be? Uh, the client might be an engineering manager in a firm, and we're going to go do something for one of their engineering communities. We might be looking to develop a curriculum architecture generating a learning path for one or more target audiences in the engineering world. We might be trying to produce a battery of qualification and certification tests uh, that could be part of an instructional design set of curricula or could be a standalone. Um, So there's many different uh, end of uh, project uses for this kind of data. So it can drive construction, it can drive your recruiting and selection processes and what you're really looking for, you know, what you're trying to avoid training because you want to hire for it in the first place, those kinds of things. So uh, anyone in an organization could look to hire you or hire someone who's following this process and, and focus the process on their specific context. Right. It's really all about their real-world context as attested to and uh, contributed to by the master performers and or other people that might be involved in the process too. You might, I, I use the term master performers, you can call it anything you want, but I also sometimes bring in a subject matter experts from the IT world, let's say my client, we're going to look at beefing up their training, look and see what they have, filling in the gaps, uh, their world might be going through some changes and some new IT tools or something is going to be implemented. And so I might have somebody from that world who can speak to how will this new tool be integrated into performance in the future. Maybe the master performers don't know that because they're masters of today's performance, and this new IT tool will be part of tomorrow's performance. So you might want to mix up your, the group that you're facilitating to make sure you get the right kinds of voices in the process. One of the things I really like about this process is you really focus first on what the outcomes are. Yes, it's, uh, it's what is that performance, what are the outputs produced, what are, how do you know a good one from a bad one, what are the various tasks that are performed, who's involved in each one of the tasks, is somebody doing this by themselves, or are they doing this in collaboration with two other, three other groups, 
you know, who's involved in the sandbox performance? We're trying to get that pinned down with great clarity. And we're not going for some blue sky model that's never been done in the world, in the real world. We're going after what the master performers that we've assembled, what they will come to consensus on. When they say, well, I don't do it that way, but you could do it that way too. So if somebody else has been doing it one way, new to the others, that might be, in fact, the best practice, and they might want that to be what we capture because that's what you'd want to then eventually train everybody to or hold them accountable from a performance management standpoint. Again, many, many uses for this data, and you can tie it, uh, all sorts of things together uh, to the same look at a performance view, training, recruiting selection, performance management, appraisals, et cetera, et cetera. Name the four outputs that you can produce. So if, I, uh, if yeah. I'm going to uh, if I'm going to do this, we're focused on identifying that ideal stay with the master performers. What are the four th- four possible outputs? The the there, well, there, the four things include uh, the areas of performance, which is a chunking or segmentation device, and I'll explain that in a moment. And then for each area of performance you would generate a performance model chart, which would capture all the details. Um, Then you would use, uh, I have 17 categories of enabling knowledge and skills. So if you're doing this from an instructional standpoint, you're interested in what are the knowledge and skills that would enable that performance that we've captured. Um, But you might also, if you have other downstream uses for this data, you might go beyond the knowledge and skills and look at other human attributes and values, attributes such as physical attributes, psychological attributes, intellectual attributes, and then personal values. So those also enable performance beyond knowledge and skills. And if you're really looking to improve performance and you don't care what lever you're going to pull, um, you might also look for the non-human enablers, the environmental enablers, and that would include various data and information that's available to the performance process or materials and supplies, tools and equipment, uh, facilities and grounds, uh, budget and headcount, and then culture and consequences. And these are all what's in the environment for the human to use, manipulate in order to create the performance, create the outputs that's ideal. So let's pretend I'm a uh, uh, I'm an engineering director or a vice president of uh, of operations in charge of all the engineers. Okay. What's a specific example? Uh, uh, of what I might be looking to partner with you to do with this, and then walk me through some examples of those four outputs. Okay. Um, An example of a project goes way back into my earlier years in the mid-80s, 1987. I was involved in a project up at Prudhoe Bay in Alaska up on the North Slope, up in the Arctic Circle, where the oil fields had just been put uh, in and ramped up. And the engineering group that was part of the maintenance world wanted to create a pay-for-performance system. And they had had two other groups in there to generate all sorts of knowledge tests and everything, and the the technicians and engineers up there hated it and rejected it. So they brought us in for their third attempt, and we focused squarely on performance. And our client wanted us to generate this data that we're talking about, and then one of the things we were going to do is create a battery of performance tests, not knowledge tests, but performance tests that say, 
Guy, you're going to install this widget into this system here, and there are step-by-step -step procedures for doing it, for preparing the site before you do it, for the criteria for what does it look like when it's done, um, there's safety issues perhaps and all that. Well, we built uh, 2,200 performance tests for about 18 different technical populations in the maintenance world. And we, for each one of these technical populations, we created this performance model, and the first thing we did is we chunked out their jobs. There may be uh, uh, pre-activities before you go do a maintenance effort, then there's doing the actual maintenance effort, and then afterwards there's cleaning up, and there may be another part of paperwork, and so you just chunk it out, you segment the entire performance, uh, much like uh, an, I, an instructional design person might do in our own world, we have the ADDI model. And that is an example of areas of performance. We do analysis, design, development, implementation, evaluation. Some of us do planning before we do any of that, so that would be another area of performance. And another example of that could also be a sales process. It could be a design process. Exactly. Uh, I've done this with uh, new product development efforts in some major corporations, and one of their first steps is to develop a business case. Then if that flies, then they do product development. And then once the product is developed by the engineering groups or whomever, this could be applied to services as well, but you do product introduction. And then you're managing the product growth as the thing takes off and everybody wants to buy more and more. And then it goes into product maturity where your sales kind of level off. And someday you might go into product decline where sales are dropping. Maybe it's being replaced by new technology or whatever, or maybe you're trying to replace it with new technology and you're sending your own older products into decline and some and so you got to manage the decline is you sell less and less you need to make less and less and there's a whole bunch of issues with that and then at some point you might do product discontinuance and get out of the business so that's a framing device a chunking device you segment that whole process end to end and now you can begin to do your analysis on it and you'll be less likely to miss something because you weren't jumping around out of order and you don't even know what you have because you've been generating it in such a strange fashion here. One of the things uh, we should clarify is that these outputs are, are in many ways the outputs that uh, the performance modeling process produces. They're not necessarily the outputs for the business. Right. It represents the business's processes. And most of the time, my experience anyway, is that the master performers each have their own mental model of their world of work, but they're not the same as all their peers. Sometimes that's not true, but most of the time it's been true where, where all of a sudden we have to come together and take everybody's mental model and create one so that we can continue with the rest of our efforts, which is to detail out the performance requirements, look at all the enabling knowledge and skills, et cetera, et cetera, and then that will lead us to whatever our downstream effort is. Got it. Got it. So give me some examples of, of some of the categories and uh, enablers that you might have, that you came up with when working up in Alaska. Okay. And, um, these are a fairly standard set. I've been using them since the mid 80s and they haven't changed really since then. But one of the, so, so people are performing and we understand they're producing these outputs and these are the tasks. We understand the measures for the outputs and all of that. Now we can begin to systematically derive, um, you know, what are the company policies, procedures, and practices and guidelines that you must comply with, you know, the internal rules. 
And we would identify all of those and understand, okay, you need to understand policy three when you're doing performance number seven and 12 and 15, but none of the others. And this other policy is applicable to uh, outputs and tasks number one and seven, you know. So there's, so it's a, it's a mixed thing. So we're looking for, okay, where, where do you need to know policies and procedures and work? Because you must comply with them when you perform. We can then go from that into the externally imposed uh, guidelines and such, laws, regulations, codes, agreements, contracts of such. There could be externally industry standards that we want to comply with, but I've had clients who basically have decided that, yes, on this new product, we're not going to comply with those industry standards. We're going to create new ones, so we're going to go leapfrog around that or whatever. There's other internal organizations and resources that you might need to be aware of and knowledgeable about so that you can call upon them when you need to in your own performance. There's Sometimes you need to know about the marketplace and the competitors and, and, and competitive products that are out there. You have to have your own product and service knowledge. You know, what do we have product and service-wise that we sell or render to the marketplace? And it sounds like there's just a tremendous amount of detail you have to capture. Yes, in a typical project, you don't usually do this on low-hanging fruit. So if you're going to go look at the new product development efforts for a Fortune 100 company, you might end up with about 12 to 1,500 of these enabling knowledge and skill items. So there must be many times. What are some of the risks then inherent in 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 trying to do this? Well, it's kind of garbage in, garbage out. Um, you've got to have people who are really knowledgeable, really master performers. And when you ask them what is you need to know, of course they'll make something up because they don't know off the top of their head. They're usually operating at an automatic pilot level. Um, so you have to you can't go too fast. You have to facilitate the group properly, not let them get too far ahead of themselves, and stay focused. So if you're focused on, when I'm doing analysis um, and I'm worried about uh, company policies and procedures, well, we don't have any for how you do analysis. But when we look at the law, the law might have something that dictates how we go about doing our analysis. I'm making this up here. Uh, and there may be no real industry standards for how we do analysis. So you have to basically have the right people the voice of the master performers, which represents the voice of your customer, um, that's who you want to be speaking to. What is the job actually? And what is it that you really have to know in order to be able to do that? And even if you assemble a group of master performers and they give you as much time as you need, you're never going to really produce a perfect output. But, but it's my view that who else would you ask? Yeah. Uh, you know, you can't ask anybody else because they won't really know. And if you ask a master performer or a subject matter expert, uh, I know that the research that uh, Dr. Richard E. Clark at the University of Southern California has come up with suggests that uh, experts can miss up to 70% of what a novice truly needs to perform. So, and I think that's true because I've asked master performers before and somebody will tell me and then I'll have everybody else in the room jump all over that and fix it because it's partial, it's incomplete, it used the wrong words for them. And so that's the tricky part is facilitating a group of typically high ego people because they are master performers. They're very good and they know that. Yeah. And they all come together and then they have to build this consensus model and part of what they start off with doing is testing each other to see who's really as good as me or... Am I really as good as you? Um, and so there's a weird dynamic that the facilitator has to deal with when they're facilitating these groups here. But, but the secret really is if you know your process and the data that you want and 
you know how you're going to use that data because you don't ever want to gather data you're not going to use. The real secret is getting the right people in the room that really truly represents the target audience. Which brings us into step two. Yes. So let, so step one, in summary, is, is a fairly big step. You spend a lot of time identifying the process specifically, coming up with a performance model chart uh, of the areas of performance. You, you spend uh, a, a large amount of time identifying different categories of knowledge and skills in other areas uh, and, and focusing on what enables you to hit those areas of performance. And you do this by bringing in a group of people uh, and facilitating them through a process to gather this information. Is that correct? When, when I meet with my clients, I am normally asking them, uh, explaining how we're, the data that we're going to gather, how we're going to use it, and now what I want from them in terms of their master performers. So now they're you're going. So part two now is going into that group and facilitating the master performers and others through a process to get this data. Right, and so. The, the types of people that you might want to have in the room include the master performers that I've been talking about and other subject matter experts, perhaps somebody from the IT world if there's a new tool or if they're changing policies and procedures, maybe you got legal and compliance in the room with you. I've had a lot of different people besides the targeted master performers in the process just so there's more eyes and ears and, and hands involved in this thing so we get the best product. And it depends on what's, what, what the inherent risk is in the situation for my client. And again, usually these are fairly uh, important, critical jobs and in, in critical business processes. So once they understand what they're going to get, they usually work pretty hard to get the right people involved in this. Now, how, but how so, many times do you pull these guys together? Uh, I do this, well, we're talking about the analysis methodologies. And so I pull them together one time, typically for a three-day meeting, sometimes two, sometimes four, on rare occasion five. I've done over 250 of these here since 1982. So I've got a lot of experience doing this. I've had group rooms with 42 people in the room doing this, and it's a nightmare, and you need you know an extra week to do it because there's just too many people to facilitate. So I've even convinced clients to basically narrow this down, take 8 to 12 people of your best master performers, and then if you feel that that's not a large enough group, uh, given the total target audience population size, we'll take all the data that we generate out on a road show and we'll use analysis review teams and we'll read out the data and get a lot more people involved and they'll embellish and fix things even more, which tells you that you know, you're never actually probably done with this. It's, Hard to pin everything down 100%. But, but so, the, so the groups that you bring in to facilitate them, well, if your primary target audience is new people in the instructional design sense, then you probably just don't want old, wizened master performers in the room because these are usually the people who have lots of years in the job, and they forget what it's like on day one, week one, month one. So you may need to bring in somebody who can kind of represent that and go toe-to-toe with big egos. So you need the right kind of a novice performer, somebody who can stand up and really, you know, represent their segment of that target audience. Um, There's been occasions when I've had to bring in managers and supervisors because the client felt that the master performers, while they may be the best we've got, they don't really know enough about ideally what we're looking for. And But our supervisors and managers, you know, if we bring them in there, then, then that should help get us to a, you know, a, the future state that the client is envisioning. So that's happened. I've also had uh, clients who said, hey, we got to bring in a guy from Scotland because he's the only one who can really help us with this. 
So they've done that. And I've had another client uh, in the auto industry bring in somebody from Australia because he was the best dealer auditor. He'd catch all the dealers doing bad things that the company didn't want done. And he was the person, so we're going to have to have him involved, and we had to bring him from Australia to uh, Detroit to run this, these meetings. So you bring him in for the, a short amount of time, whatever it takes to get it done, and that's a combination of looking at the scope and uh, you know how likely are these master prefers going to come to consensus? Do they all not like each other? That's going to take a little bit longer. So there's a lot of politics involved in this as well. Always, always. And you you tell the uh, steering team when you're handpicking these people, they've got to be your really best people. Um, and you probably need to think about how you're covering your your territory, your regions, your, you know, however you're operating and organize yourself. You just can't, you know, have everybody from the West Coast and the Midwest there and have not have the East Coast represented. Politically, that might not be unacceptable. Right. And I had a lot of clients go, oh, you're right. Okay, so we have to, you know, we have to really get everybody. And what I do with the project steering team is I say, you're, you're handpicking the people that we're going to emulate in the future with this. So you, it's short-term pain for you in your regions because you're going to lose a master performer for three days. Um, but the gain for the company is we're going to capture more of the best practices, and when we decide what we're going to teach people, we're going to teach them how these master performers do things, not as you know, one subject matter expert might tell an instructional designer. So sometimes there's other, these other stakeholders that are, get involved here, and it all is you know, situationally dependent. You've got to look at what is this situation, how stable is it, how unstable is it, and why. What's going on here? Um, is there a fight between one organization and the other one about turf issues, and you know, they're overlapping or there's a gap and no one wants to step up to that? Maybe we need to have a, people from another group involved in this to help us clarify where are the boundaries between this organization, what they do, versus another organization, what they do. And once you... clients actually use this methodology for new groups that are coming together to decide, okay, here's all this stuff that has to be done. Who's going to really do what? And, and gonna... very quickly, though, now you put them in the room. You got them all there. You've, you've mitigated as much as you can around the politics, although it'll certainly come back up as you facilitate the, the two to four days. Mm-hmm. There are four parts to your facilitation process. Yes. Uh, the first thing is we want to make sure that we're all clear about what scope or boundaries we're looking at. We may be looking at an entire job, everything that that job title does, or we may be looking at what part of that, depending on what the clients have decided. Could be looking at a team effort, the same thing. Everything that this team does or when they're working on these kinds of efforts, so it could be scoped differently. So that has to be clear to everybody, and I've seen that where you know all the letters go out and people show up for these meetings, and then they're confused because they thought we were going to do something else. So I've learned you've got to kind of create an advanced organizer for everybody and figure out what is the right language so everybody kind of gets that boundary condition down so that you have to talk that through a little bit, and then, then you can start. And then you start off by doing this segmenting or chunking of the, with the areas of performance. So. What I would do, and let me use the ADDI model as a simple example here for all of us. If I said, oh, you're instructional designers, do you guys do design? And me as a facilitator trying to prime the pump. And uh, so they might say, oh, yeah, we do design. And so I go write, write that on my flip chart or whatever in front of the room and say, put that in the middle and put a circle around it and say, okay, what do you do before you do design? And they might say, oh, we do analysis. Okay, so great. Okay, we'll put analysis, we'll put a box around that. Do you do anything before analysis? And they might say, 
Yeah, we meet with the client and plan the project. Okay, write that down. That's another area of performance. And I say, what do you do before that? And if they can't answer that because that's really the start of everything, I go, oh, we bumped into the start. <laughs> okay, so you do meet with the client, you plan a project, then you do analysis, then you do design. Is there anything that you do after design? And they go, oh, yeah, we develop. Oh, okay, so we do develop. We'll put that up there. Right, is there anything you do after that? Well, yeah, we do implementation or whatever they call it. And then after that, evaluation or whatever, however they model their instructional design process in that example. So you, you frame that and then you say, okay, that, so then there's the acid test. Is there anything that you've done in the last six months, task-wise or output-wise, that doesn't fit in that framework? And somebody might say, oh, sometimes, yeah, we, uh, we deliver training. Oh, okay, so there's, now I've stumbled on another cycle. They might say, everything is fine for that ad thing. Yeah, that's end-to-end, -end, and we're done with that one here. But we also have other job tasks that we do besides designing and developing instruction. We sometimes deliver instruction. Okay, so then... So it sounds like the delivery would be one of those areas of performance. And I would say, yes. And I'd say, what do you do before delivery? Well, we gather our materials and set up the room. Okay, is there anything you do before that? Yeah, we check the schedule and make sure we understand who's coming and all of those kinds of things. And check for changes in the materials or whatever. I'm making this up. Sure. So, so if they said, that's the end of that. We get our marching orders. This class is where I'm going to do the delivery. So we got those pieces. I said, do you do anything after delivery now? So what you're doing is you're trying to place a stake in the ground performance-wise and then go upstream from there, and then when you've exhausted that and got to the very beginning, then you go back to where your first stake was, and then you start going downstream from there and find out where does this end. And so you've captured an entire cycle of performance, and you've got to do the acid test. Does everything fit in there? And somebody will inadvertently come up with something that's outside of that stream, and then that becomes another area of performance. So I'm uh, I'm stealing this from you, but basically there are four parts to the process. You discuss the scope and the boundaries. You establish the areas of performance one at a time. That's step mm -hmm. two. Step three is to complete the PM charts. Yeah. And then step three, systematically derive category by category, exhausting every area of performance until you can move to the next one. Yeah, so an example of that, going back to the simple ADDI model, we would start off with the A, the analysis, and say, okay, are there company policies procedures? Yes or no. Okay, no. Are there laws and regulations? Yes or no. Are there interest standards? Are there internal organizations that you use when you're doing that analysis thing? External marketplace knowledge, process knowledge, tools, equipment. So, so you exhaust you exhaust analysis as an area of performance, and you go through all of the 17 or whatever number of the categories are appropriate. One of the categories is management and supervisory knowledge, and if you're dealing with a target audience that's not management and supervisors, that category obviously goes away. So you would basically focus on analysis and want to understand all the enablers to it. And what happens is that people are fixing the performance model data about the analysis itself because thinking about knowledge and skills, reminds them of another missing task, and so they begin to embellish that and fix that. And then when we're all done with analysis and all 17 of the categories, then we move on to the first D, design, and ask the same series of questions. Are there laws, regulations, or policies and procedures that you must comply with? And there either are or there aren't. So if there are, we capture them so that we understand how this one discrete knowledge and skill item how it, what it enables. Does it enable more than one thing? 
So, Guy, how do you handle uh, the fact that we live in a Twitch speed world today? And the subject matter, uh, let me, uh, the, uh, the masters of performance may not be current tomorrow or a week from now. So the company spends a lot of time and effort going through and doing the modeling process. How long does it last? And how dynamic is the process once it's complete to be able to adjust to changes in technology, changes in industry? For example, if you did this with the, with the mortgage industry, uh, the policies right now are changing every other week. Coming right. at, so how do you deal with systems, technology, policy shifting constantly? Well, that's just the real world, so you have to deal with that. And you deal with that by, by having all these discrete knowledge and skills. You can begin to manage your inventory of content. Uh, my best example on this is that for AT&T Network Systems, which is now Lucent Alcatel, I did this for their product management world back in 1986. In 89, they had me come back to refresh the data because they felt their world had changed so much that you know everything's got to be different. There were very few differences. There were differences, but there were very few compared to all the data that we had gathered. And so we refreshed that, and then we refreshed their curriculum based on that. Then in 92, they did the same thing. So they wanted to update their data. And again, there were very few changes. There was a new tool that they were starting to use. There's new reports that they were getting or generating. But the bulk of it, over 90% of it, didn't change. There's a lot of enabling knowledge and skills that aren't going to change. But, but so when you use this, if you will, modular approach to, approach to data gathering in your analysis, and then that kind of segues into a modular design of your content, then it's much easier to go manage your content because you know I've got these 17 policies and procedures. I can go talk to the policy procedure folks and say, are any of these changed? I can look at all the tools that people have to use in a job, and I can go back to the master performers and ask them, have any of your tools changed? My clients in the past that really got uh, enthralled with all this decided that this, this uh, having the analysis data was where you began your, uh, they were an engineering company. So engineering change management. How do you change your product? In, this, in our case, it's sometimes instruction. And so how do you change your instructional product? How do you know what's gone out of date and what's still okay? And so you can manage it by looking at the performance model data and the enabler matrices data and deciding what's changed and has anything changed. And so we can capture that and we can then find its way into the content that we've got and we can begin to manage the content. Yeah. But perfect, the mortgage world is a great example because the policies and procedures are changing um, and they'll probably be in constant change. And so as an organization that has to step up to something like that and keep your content evergreen, you're going to have to have a way to recognize when things change. But also that will begin to then impact your design approach and how you organize content to reduce your future life cycle costs. This is a big deal for me. I've been working on this for a long time, and that's part of why I do this modular curriculum because it makes it cheaper in the long run for my clients to manage all of that yeah if you even have the like uh one of our clients is in the mortgage business and uh, literally the skill sets are shifting mm-hmm. as the types of products shift that they can offer 
whether it's through securitization or other formats in the business. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 it's become quite tricky for them to, to think about knowledge and skills when they're not even sure what business they're in. Yeah, and I think the best thing to do, quite frankly, and it sounds very self-serving, of course, is to basically go model that performance and understand all the enablers and then now manage changes from that standpoint. But you've got to know where your analysis data ended up in the actual design. Yeah, yeah, and you have to also know what the vision is for the endpoint. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's why you might need, in, in that particular case, some of your your uh, smartest uh, forward thinkers in the mortgage world, those people who are watching what the congressional committees are doing and talking about and trying to anticipate where this yeah. might go and all of that stuff. That, that would be more than just your, you know, the... Of course, in the mortgage business, there's a whole bunch of people. There's people selling this stuff. There's people processing it. There's you know all sorts of jobs in, in right. that. Um, but it will change a lot of things throughout that overall process for many jobs because the rules and procedures and forms are going to all change. So you, you mentioned earlier that you, you generally try and avoid the subject matter experts as as master performers, that you distinguish the two. What, what's the story behind that? I guess, um, well, it was when I was at Motorola in the early 80s, and I had a, I was working uh, supporting the manufacturing and materials and purchasing world, and I got somebody in who was a purchasing expert, and we were creating training for the purchasing community across uh, six or seven different lines of business that are all doing things a little bit differently. But so this person was, and our goal as a corporate training organization was basically to create things that, you know, I think, I can't remember what the rule is, but over 50% of the business units had to be, you know, had to be applicable to them and then we could build something for them. But this, this corporate person was seven years removed from the field. They had been a corporate subject matter expert for seven years in this purchasing domain. And so they were they were hip to all the things happen at the corporate level, but the, for the purchasing agents dealing you know on the ground level, and all the nuances with the real world out there, this person didn't have a clue. And we I dutifully you know interviewed them, and we helped me build my training, you know creating the, the objectives and the tests and the content and all of that good stuff, and went to pilot session, and it was awful. And the people in the room took us to task because this was all garbage, out of date. This is the way they did it back in the old days. And so I decided that, okay, this has happened to me several times at that point, and this was the worst. And so I, I remedied the situation by asking the client when we read out all the pilot results, that we were obviously going to have to go back and redo the analysis and design and the development of the materials. And I just said, why don't you give me some of your best people, some of the people that you sh- you put in my pilot session. They weren't target audience representatives. They were master performer representatives, and they weren't going to learn a darn thing, but they sure could find all the errors in that. And so the clients let me work with those same people since they now knew the content we were trying to create and could help us create a, a better set. And I brought all of those people together in one forum, and we bashed through the existing, we kind of backed into the whole thing. We took the existing content and we fixed it. We didn't go back and redo analysis and redo yeah. design. We just did it from the development stuff. Yeah. It's but that, was my, that was my one story. And so, 
And one of the things that was also happening to me, I was getting other subject matter experts that were who I would call the friends of training. And they were always available to help me on any training effort that I had. Um, and I had a client uh, uh, look at an analysis report, read the names on the cover, because we always like to credit the people that helped us with this, and he threw the analysis report across the room and said, well, this is garbage. And I said, why would you say that? And he read off the names on the cover that were basically were people that he had no respect for. Um, and so I learned a very valuable lesson here in that I would never select my own people to work with in my client organization. I would ask them to pick out the no-nonsense business people, the people who really don't like us training folks. Those would be fine. Because if I could turn them and do good things for them, they would then sell the rest of their world, and I wouldn't have to fight upstream every step. Yeah. They would do the blocking for me, and i get to run with the ball. We're uh, running out of time. Okay. As we conclude, in one sentence, sum up everything you've said today. Let's see. Okay. Using master performers to generate views of performance requirements, and the enabling knowledge and skills is a best practice. Excellent. As we go through and, and start looking at, at uh, whether this is something that companies should do, what are the criteria that, a, uh, that an organization should look at when deciding to engage with you or go through this process? Well, I think if they want to go through this process, it is a data-intense process. Um, there, there's a time and a place for doing this. When you have a serious issue, high risk, high rewards, whatever the R is in your ROI, uh, pulling together these kinds of people uh, to get them together face-to-face in a room. Is, I've, I've tried to do this online, and, and it's just impossible because people are paying attention to their email or some other things and not paying attention to what you're doing. But um, I, I would say that, that pull Pulling together the group, I think you have to have, because of the investment of pulling together the right people, taking them off the job and into one of these kinds of meetings, you have to be dealing with something that's uh, a critical business issue, uh, something that's got high risk, high reward value for the organization. You just don't do something with some low-hanging fruit, um, but where you can't afford to fail or you can't afford for it to be wrong, uh, whether it's an instructional product or you're changing your recruiting and selection criteria for a really key critical job, you really want to have the right kinds of people involved in this. And that's just not always just the master performers, but but they're the only people that can adequately represent the current day performance mastery. And so I think that uh, that's the criteria. You just can't, shouldn't do this because people will, on the low-hanging fruit, because people will say when you're all done, that was a lot of rigmarole for something that wasn't that important. Are there any so, size requirements for a company to go through this? Uh, no, I don't think so. <clears throat> um, sometimes I, when I've had clients who said, well, we've only got two or three people that are really masters at this, uh, and that makes the meeting just a little less formal than if you had eight to 12 master performers and you're trying to facilitate everybody equally to give them equal voice. Um, 
So that, I don't think size really has to do it. If, if you have a, if you've got something that, let's just say that one of the government regulate, uh, regulatory agencies just smacked you with a couple hundred million dollar fine because your performers or something is screwy in your processes, you may want to use something like this to get all the right people, the right voices in looking at this and then pin it down. Yeah. Guy, any uh, last words? Um, I know this is what we've been covering is kind of complicated, but it's, it's been covered in a ISPI, uh, NSPI at the time, Performance and Improvement Journal going back to November of 1984. That's the first time the analysis methodology was published. But it's also covered in my book, Lean ISD, which is available as a free PDF on my website at epic.biz, that's E-P-P-I-C dot B-I-Z. And it's also covered in Chapter 11 of the 2004 Handbook of Human Performance Technology. So there's several sources out there for someone to read more about this. And then uh, you may not be able to adopt it as it's been written, but you should be able to adapt it to your own situational needs. Cool. Guy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Matt, for asking me. And I hope you're uh, willing to come back again. I am. I know that uh, Tiagi wants you to come and do one of our training podcasts. Ha! Uh, and, I would love that. And join him, and uh, he wants to reprise your uh, ISPI debate on uh, rapid instructional design versus Addy. Yes. <laughs> I'd love to do that. <laughs> he says you kicked his butt. That's not true. but uh, <laughs> And the crowd always loves him more than they love anybody else in the room, but... Oh, tell me about it. I've had 15 years of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I guess you would. (laughs) So, anyway, thanks, Guy. We'll uh, talk with you soon. Thank you, Matt. Thanks to Guy Wallace for joining us today for Episode 2 of the Business Intelligence Tiagi Group Podcast. Tune in someday, soon, hopefully, for Episode 3. We will post on our website our upcoming guest, and feel free to check out our sister podcast, the Tiagi Group uh, Training Intelligence Podcast. We just posted uh, an interview with Tiagi on puzzles. So tune in soon, and uh, take care. Take care.